Good morning, everyone. Would you take a moment to pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your spirit lives within us. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit is here with us, guiding us. Lord, open our ears and our eyes to everything that you are doing. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord. And may we give you all the glory in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I want to start out talking about a book real quick, which I think is how I started out my last sermon, ironically. If you can't tell, I like reading a little bit. Um, But in his book debut, Not a Fan, Kyle Eidelman presents the idea that there are two groups of people seeking after Jesus. They are the fans and the followers. And I think both those groups exist even still today. So there was these groups in Jesus' day, and I think we have those same groups here today. They are the solid core who committed to Jesus and the crowd who followed Jesus because they wanted something. They they wanted many things from him. A lot of it was because of what he could do for them. Now, I'm going to help frame what he and I mean by these terms by putting it in the context of something that I know is very near and dear to many of you sitting in this room. You ready? New England sports. (laughs) Now, no matter where I have lived in New England, whether it was far western Massachusetts where I grew up out in the Berkshires, or it was the North Shore of Boston, here on the South Shore, or up in Southern Maine, one thing has been very much true. I was surrounded by diehard, dedicated New England sports fanatics. You're not just fans, you're fanatics, right? I should say we. Yeehaw, exactly. We New Englanders are really special that way about our sports, aren't we? We could be the most opposite people in the world when it comes to religion, when it comes to politics, when it comes to ideology or cultural background. We could be so opposite, but you put us all in one place to root for the home team. And what happens? We unite in a way that we don't unite on anything else. If you have the Celtics, the Bruins, the Patriots, or the Red Sox playing at a home game, we come together to root and to cheer. And heaven above, help the person who was rooting for the away team. Heaven help that person. If you've lived in New England for a while, and by a while I mean even like, I don't know, 10 minutes, half a sports season, then you know exactly what I mean. I truly believe that there are no other sports fans that are quite as dedicated, quite as crazy about their team. We are invested, intense New England fans. So for me, this indoctrination began when I was a small child. I grew up literally like on the New York State border. And all of our news came from Albany, New York, which means we heard about the Yankees a whole lot. And Boston was three hours from me, which as a kid, that was like across the country. But in spite of all of that, I was taught that we are tried and true Red Sox fans. We are there whether they deliver us a World Series title or not. They are our team for better or for worse. That is who we, exactly, you're, yes. That was my upbringing, and that is what I was taught. It is still ingrained in me, as you can tell. 
This was our team. We weren't just fans that stood by and received the joy of a win. We were there for our team, no matter what. But I don't think I actually fully grasped the for better or the for worse part until 2004. In 2004, the fall of 2004, some of you have their wheels turning already, Rich and I moved to Manhattan. Of all places, the epicenter of New England rivalry, particularly Red Sox rivalry. So we're living in Manhattan, the fall of 2004, and what happens but the Red Sox make it to the playoffs. And who other are they playing but the New York Yankees? Many of you remember this, right? Okay, so let's relive it here for a second. Game one, they lost. Game two, they lost. Can you imagine living in New York City and the taunting that we faced every single day? And we worked in a Christian organization. <laughs> but this rivalry is real, folks. It's real. Game three, they lost. Oh, no. Game four, it's down to game four. Okay, we got to get a win here. Game four, they win. Yes. We're still taunted the next day, by the way. We're hearing things like, it's been almost 100 years. Give it up. They're not going to win. Go home. The curse is real. That's what we're hearing every day. Okay, so we've got game four, they win. Game five, they win. Game six, they win. It is all now down to game seven. Okay, those of you who are old enough, who remembers where they were for this game? Raise your hands, yeah? That's right, most of us do. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna be honest, I couldn't watch it. <laughs> I sat in the other room playing a video game, which if you know me, I don't even like video games. Like, I don't like them, they're not fun. But I'm playing a video game, this is pre-children, mind you, and I'm having Rich yell to me what's happening in the other room because I just, like, I couldn't handle watching what was going to happen. And then, and then it happens. They manage to win game seven, and they have now moved on. And what happens next? They have the biggest win of all time in all human history. They break the curse, and they bring home the World Series title in 2004. Biggest win of all time in all human history. Yes, let's cheer for that. That's right. Okay, so maybe biggest win of all time in all human history is a little bit of an exaggeration. But it didn't feel that way, right? If you were someone who can go back that far and remember that moment, remember the joy and the tears and the celebration that ensued in New England, particularly in Boston, the impossible happened. Why? Because New Englanders, they don't back down. They're not fair weather friends. Even in the face of an 86-year-old curse that came crumbling to the ground. Red Sox Nation was as committed as they come. So in the context of fans and followers, right, New Englanders aren't just fans. They are followers. They are not the crowd. They are the core of these teams. They are diehard, come what may, tried and true disciples of their teams. 
Now, I know I may be a little biased having, you know, grown up in New England and all and been indoctrinated in this, but I do believe that to be true. And part of the reason I believe that to be true is because I've listened to all of you out in the lobby the last few weeks in particular when discussing Patriot recent playing history, right? I know it stings a little, I'm sorry. But none of you have abandoned ship yet. You are still with them. You are with your team. Fans, on the other hand, right? Let's talk about the fans. Fans, on the other hand, are the people who love their team because the people around them love their team. It's a cool, culturally relevant thing to do, or maybe it's something that gives you something to do on a Monday night or a Friday night or during the day on a weekend. It's just something to do. And for fans, when the team stops doing well, it's easy enough to move on to the next thing, the next whatever it is that gives you joy and makes you happy. A fan appreciates their team and the entertainment they provide, but that's really as far as it goes. So let me ask you this. When it comes to Jesus, would you consider yourself a fan or a follower? In the passage of scripture that we just read, we see that Jesus had both fans and followers. I call them the crowd and the core. Right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we find that he's almost always surrounded by these great crowds, right? People who want to see him. Mark 128 tells us that the news about him spread so quickly throughout the whole region and that people followed him from place to place. They were curious. They wanted to see were all the stories true? Was everything that the people were saying about him, was it true? Could he really heal like they had heard? Was he really the son of God, as was declared at his baptism? Is he trustworthy? Is he the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament? Church, isn't it true that we've often wondered some of the very same questions? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Can he really save me? Is he trustworthy? Is he worth it? And I'm here to tell you today that those questions aren't wrong. They're not, they're not bad questions. I mean, imagine for a moment hearing the story that happens at the beginning of this chapter, of Mark chapter 3, for the first time. In this story, there's a man who comes to the temple and he has, he has a shriveled hand. Is this hand that doesn't work. And Jesus tells this man, stretch out your hand. The man obeys. He stretches out his hand, and he's healed. His hand is healed. Now imagine for a moment that you knew this man. You had seen him as a cripple. And now here he stood before you, renewed and strengthened and healed, wouldn't you have questions? Wouldn't you wonder, what is this all about? Is this true? Is it valid? It's okay and reasonable sometimes to have questions, but at some point, we must move beyond the questions. We must answer those questions 
for ourselves, just as the crowd in Jesus day did. You must answer those questions for yourself. So some of the crowd, they're there because they're wondering, they're curious, genuinely curious about Jesus and what it is he's doing. But other, crowd, other people in the crowd, they're there, to, they're there to get something, they're there to receive, they're there to take. I have this need and I need you, Jesus, I need you to fix it. I need you to make me feel better so that I can go on with my life, so that I can, I can get some things done, I can feel better. They wanted something. They wanted to be healed. While others in this crowd, right, they showed up with a very specific purpose. They were there to gather information about Jesus. These are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day, um, and we hear about the Pharisees and their interactions with Jesus over and over and over again in the four Gospels, the four, the four first books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they have already decided that Jesus is a threat to their way of life. No matter what miraculous things he performs, no matter what he does that is good and kind and right, they have made it up in their minds that he is a threat to them. Why? Because Jesus, it tells us, taught as one who had authority. And Jesus was winning over this crowd. Now I'm sure you've seen examples of this in your own life. The difference between somebody who speaks with authority and somebody who speaks with authority because of the position that they hold, right? I want you to go back to school for those of you who are out of school. Think of that teacher, right, that you had that you really did not like, but you had to respect them. You had to show them some type of respect because they were your teacher. You had to follow the rules. You didn't have a choice. But then there are these other teachers, right, that you had along the way. There was something different about them. When they came into the room, they just commanded respect. They didn't have to say a word. They just commanded your respect. And they taught in a different way. They taught with authority. And I think this is how the crowd saw the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus was teaching with this other kind of authority. And in the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus' authority, that could change everything. It could ruin everything for them. It could ruin it for them with the Romans. If it caused trouble with the Romans, the Pharisees could be stripped of the power that they held on to. But then there's the fact that Jesus just keeps making the Pharisees look bad in front of people. Right? So earlier in chapter 3, we find out that Jesus heals this man's hand. But he heals this man's hand on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath is a day that God has commanded, one of the seven days, God has commanded for everyone to rest. He's, he's commanded it to be a holy day that's set apart. And this was one of the commandments given in the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. So the Pharisees look at this healing now we look at this as life-giving and wonderful for this man to have had his hand healed, but the Pharisees look at this and they say, you worked, you did work, you did something wrong, you broke the law. Not only do the Pharisees get it completely wrong about the Sabbath, 
but who do you think won the favor of the crowd that day? The Bible doesn't tell us, right? The Bible doesn't say that, that Jesus won their favor, but we do find out that the crowds keep coming and they come even on the Sabbath. So Jesus is gaining favor with these crowds. Jesus, with his real God-given authority, is causing the Pharisees to fear for their own self-given authority to the point where they're plotting to kill Jesus rather than what? Rather than recognize their own sinful hearts and the gift from God that stood before them. There's another group in that crowd there that day as well. Another group that had made up their minds about who Jesus was. I call them the core, the true followers. And in this enormous crowd of people, Jesus takes from it 12 that he sets apart for himself. We call them the disciples. They were 12 people who had already committed themselves to Jesus fully, who dropped everything, their livelihoods, their homes, their families, to come and follow him when he called. He called them to something deeper, deeper than admiration, deeper than filling a need. So what set them apart? Why them? Were they smarter? Were they wealthier? Were they more learned at scripture? Were they stronger? Were they more popular than the rest? Why these 12? It's a question I would imagine probably perplexed the disciples too. Why us? Like there's all these people here. Why us? And I think the answer lies not in any of the things that I just mentioned, but in their obedience you see, in each account of these 12 men, we have Jesus calling them, and without hesitation, wherever they are, whatever it is they're doing, they dropped everything, and they went with him. These men were not learned. They were not schooled. Most of them were lower-class working fishermen, which didn't show much promise in the world of moving up anywhere. You're just making a, a life's living. And then you have Matthew, who's a tax collector, who literally in that day and age would have been like the most unpopular person around. He was the one that they looked at and said, you're cheating me, you're taking away my livelihood. They were ordinary, common men who I expect, guys, had the same life issues that we face even now here today. Like them, each one of you sitting here today has been called by Jesus. Some of you may not even know that yet. Some of you may be wondering, I don't even know why I showed up at church. I don't know what compelled me. It was Jesus, by the way. But in the very least, you're curious. You want to know more about who this guy is and if he is for real. Some of you heard that call a long time ago. Some of you heard that call very recently. Some of you question whether or not that call was even real, if he is even real. 
But for some of you, that call was a life-altering, explosive, unforgettable moment. But for others, it was the still, small voice of God over the course of time, gentle and constant and soothing. And no matter how God has spoken to you, as someone who has been called, you are called to be an all-in follower, not just one of the crowd who admires. You were called, as the disciples were, to be part of the core. So what does that mean to be part of the core? To be a follower and not just a fan. Well, the short version is this. Jesus' core lives as called, committed, believing, changed people who know they have a mission. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' core lives as called, committed, believing, changed people who know they have a mission. This journey to the core starts with this call from Jesus. Jesus knew the names and lives of his disciples when he called them. Before he ever met them, he knew that. But guess what? He knows yours too. He knew you before you knew him. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 tells us this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He knows you. He's always known you. The journey starts with the call, and it moves us from being one of the curious crowd to something so much deeper, a real relationship. You move from asking the same questions as the crowd, like, are you for real, to an intimacy with God. But that doesn't just happen, right? It's not like overnight. Yep, this just happened. I am now have this incredible relationship with God. At some point, you have to decide, you and not anyone else has to decide, is Jesus who he says he is? Do I believe in him? And you have to commit to following him and not being just an admirer. And let me make something clear here. Jesus asks for nothing less. He's not interested in admirers. He's calling sold out hardcore followers like we New Englanders are for our sports. Actually a lot more than that, but it's the best I got right now. Jesus makes it clear throughout his gospels he's not interested in this. And he wants us to move into actual relationship where it isn't just one party doing something for somebody else, right? I want you to think about this. How would you feel if your best friend, like get your best friend in your brain here, if your best friend suddenly stopped reciprocating in your relationship? 
all of the effort in the relationship was coming from you and you alone. And the only time you hear from this friend, who, by the way, thinks that you are an amazingly great, wonderful person, but the only time you hear from them is when they need something from you. How would you feel? I don't think any of us would feel really good about that. All of us would seriously reconsider this friendship. Are you really my friend? It feels like you're just kind of sucking the life out of me, that this isn't a relationship. There's no reciprocation. None of us would feel good. That is not the kind of relationship that Jesus calls us to. I think sometimes it's easy to fall into that, though, isn't it? But that is not the kind of relationship that Jesus calls us to. And if that's not okay in our day-to-day lives with our face-to-face friends, then why is it okay with the Savior of the world? So what does it look like to be a part of this core? Well, first, the core are committed. The core stick with Jesus through thick and through thin, even when it costs them something, but especially when it costs them something. I want you to think back to that friend for a moment. What is it that makes that friend your best friend? Would they consider you their best friend? Why? I want you to think about that. Why? There's probably a lot of reasons, right? But I suspect that one of those reasons is that your friend has been there for you through something difficult. Your friend has been there for you when there was a trial of some kind. And they've proven to you that even when it wasn't easy, they're committed to you. And if they count you a true friend, you've been there for them too, even when it cost you something. Nothing can prove or break a relationship more quickly than when something difficult comes along, right? And you find out who your real friends are. You find out who's gonna be there for you through the thick and the thin. You find out if they're committed to the relationship. Jesus' original core was tested in ways that, thank God, I suspect we will never have to be tested in. After Jesus' resurrection, uh, death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, these 12 men, they went out and they spread the good news of Jesus, and things began to happen, and the church began to grow. But what happened to them was very sad. It's thought that 10 out of 12 of them were martyred, that they came to an incredibly brutal end to their lives. Now, I, don't, I hope that God is not calling us to that, but they, these core, they proved themselves that they were going to be there through thick and through thin, and I don't think it gets any, any thicker than that. This core was committed to Jesus. Second, the core believes that Jesus is the Son of God who brings salvation and is changed from the inside out because of God's grace. For the disciples, Jesus literally changed everything. As I said earlier, the disciples were regular, ordinary people. And I know that's hard to wrap your brains around, but but that's what they were. And so to help get that across, I want to tell you what was said in Acts 4.13. So in reference to the teachers and the Pharisees and the priests of the temple, they say this about Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples. 
When they, the Pharisees and teachers, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The disciples believed, and they were changed forever. Their everyday lives reflected this change. There was absolutely no doubt who it was that they followed. You could see it in their everyday. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Church, this change, this wholeness, it isn't just for the disciples, and it certainly isn't just for the pastors. It is for all who believe in and commit to Jesus. This change is a good thing. It is something that brings wholeness and life and right relationship with God. It's when you realize who you belong to, that you are a son or a daughter of the King Most High. And this change should permeate every area of our lives. The core believes that Jesus is the Son of God who brings salvation and is changed from the inside out because of God's grace. Third, the core are an integral part of carrying out Jesus' ministry. Integral. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he laid out what we have come to call as the Great Commission. He says this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This statement, this statement was not a suggestion. This was not a, I hope you feel like doing this because it would be really great if you did. Like, this was not a suggestion. This is a command from Jesus. One of the last things he said before he ascended into heaven on the important scale, kind of big. <laughs> How are we to do that? Well, by sharing the good news of salvation, encouraging people to go public in their faith through baptism, and by teaching them. Without that understanding, but not just understanding, without that understanding and without the execution of this command by the disciples, we wouldn't be here today. There would be no Christianity. Think about it. In the end, it was up to a ragtag group of 12 men to change the world with the news of salvation. 12. From this core of 12 men, we see Jesus' life-changing work. Even 2,000 years later, here today. And for the core, for us, church, sharing about Jesus' gift of salvation should become a natural part of our everyday lives. Now, God may not be calling most of you to be overseas missionaries. Maybe he is, though. 
And God may not be calling you to stand up here and preach, but I 100% guarantee to you that you are called to share the good news. He has uniquely gifted each and every one of you with a way to do that. And I want to address a, a misconception while we're on this subject here for a moment. If you grew up in church like I did, it's possible that you have the same misconception that I had at one point. And the misconception is this, that as a Christian who is part of a church, it is your job to help the pastors with their ministry. It's a common thought people have. People think they're not smart enough, not talented enough, not versed enough in the Bible to help people come to know Jesus and to help him carry out his ministry. That's what we pay the staff for, right? Church, this is completely and utterly false. Like, completely false. We are all called to carry out the message that Jesus laid to us equally. We are equally called to this task. So much more work can be done. So much more change can happen when we embrace that fact. When we put aside the excuses and the fears and understand that we are all called in some capacity to share that. The local church is charged with laying out the vision for ministry. That's true. And for North River, that vision is people being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. This statement fits with the Great Commission, right? But it's specific to our church. This vision is overseen by the leadership of the church, but it has to be carried out by everyone here if we are going to make an impact. God has called and gifted each one of you to be an agent of change for his kingdom. Not one of you is exempt. For you, maybe that's serving in kid zone. Maybe it's praying for your neighbors. Maybe it's serving on a board or committees, a position of influence somewhere, and doing so with integrity and with truth. Here's the really scary one. Maybe it's during that conversation where one of your friends or coworkers or whomever starts to bring up religion or starts to ask you questions. I don't know about you, but sometimes there's that little seed of fear that kind of comes out there and you're like, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to answer these questions. Like, I, you should go talk to someone else and not to me. But let me tell you something. If God has opened that door to you, then you're the right person. You have been uniquely called. You have been given unique relationships. You have been uniquely gifted. And in those moments, you take a quick moment and say, God, give me the words, and you step through that door. We should always have this mission in mind in everything that we do. How am I moving God's kingdom forward in this conversation, in this response, in this choice, in this action or this inaction? 
Always have this mission in mind. Jesus' core are not the crowd. The crowd's in it until things get difficult. And they're not like the crowd who look to Jesus to only fulfill their needs and then ghost him until they need something else. They're not the crowd who look at Jesus and go, oh, you're just a great person to look up to. No, Jesus' core lives as called, committed, believing, changed people who know that they have a mission. Church, are you the crowd or are you the core? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, for your sacrifice. We pray, God, that you would work in us to remove our fears, to remove our doubts about your goodness, about your grace. God, we pray that as you give us opportunity to share what you have done in our lives, Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk boldly in that, that you would remove the fears and the barriers that keep us from doing that. God, we thank you that we are called. We thank you that you know us by name, that you knew our whole life story before we ever did. And you love us anyway. God, help us to be the core that you have called. And Lord, I pray, I pray for those who in this congregation today may be going through something tumultuous. I pray that you give them the strength to stick through it. God, I pray for those that are sick and they're hurting and I pray for their healing. I pray that you move in them and give them peace. I pray for those that are mourning. I pray that you give them joy. God, be with us as we go out. May we be daily changing the South Shore and beyond for your love.